fog. What do you do when you feel like that? What do you do when your life is surrounded by a fog of loneliness or a fog of confusion, a fog of despair, a fog of hopelessness? What do you do when it has, it has gotten very difficult to see the way forward because of all of these emotions that have formed this fog around you? Psalm 42, verse 11. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. What do you do when you are surrounded by a fog of hopelessness? The psalmist says, I will fix my eyes on the Lord. I can do that. I can put my hope in Him. Last week, as we launched our Greater Than series, we talked about loneliness, an epidemic problem in our day and time. This morning, we're going to move on to, on to hopelessness. And God is greater than both of these. The more we learn to trust in this truth, and the more we learn to build upon this truth, the more we will be able to see the fog burn away and see clearly the presence of God in our circumstances. John reminded those who had put their trust in Christ of this greater than reality when he wrote in 1 John 4, 4, the Spirit, and this is for us, the Spirit who lives in you is greater than the Spirit who lives in the world. Last week, David walked us through his fog of, of loneliness in Psalm 142. And this morning, we'll look to him again when it comes to feelings that can surround us sometimes of, of hopelessness. And ultimately, David's own story will point us forward to Jesus Christ. Now, there was a pro little bit of background this morning. We'll quickly walk, walk through this. Once upon a time, that's a great way to start a story. So here's the story. Once upon a time, there was a great prophet in Israel named Samuel. The Lord spoke to him one day and revealed to Samuel that the actual king, the serving king, King Saul, was no longer to be king or, or was to, God was going to replace him because Saul's heart had moved further and further away from the Lord. Saul's heart had, had fallen more and more in love with, with Saul and less in love with, with God. And so, so Samuel is told by the Lord, you are to go and, and locate and anoint the next and future king of Israel. And so that's what Samuel does. He travels around. He says, God, show me the plan. And eventually he's led to the home of a man named Jesse. And Saul is introduced. Saul believes, or, or I mean, Samuel knows that one of, the, one of the, these sons of Jesse will be the king. And so he begins to, to evaluate each one and listen for the Spirit of God to identify one of these as, as the next king. And, and he goes through seven impressive, seven impressive young men. But the Spirit tells him each time, no, it's not this one, it's not this one, it's not this one. And so he's like, well, what's up here? God told me one of your sons 
would be king, is this all there is? And Jesse says, there's one more. There's, there's the youngest one. He's in the fields. He's, he's shepherding. He, he's tending to my flocks. And Samuel says, well, go get him. And he says, I won't sit down until I see this David, this, this youngest son. And so he, he remains on his feet, and they bring David before him. And Samuel hears from the Lord, this, this is the one. This is the one you are to, to anoint. When Saul dies, this David will become king over all Israel, this boy. Now, we often think of David, this, this youngest of Jesse's sons. We think of David, I think in biblical terms, as the ultimate underdog, if you will. Not only was he, he the youngest of the sons of Jesse, but also this underdog scenario because of David and Goliath. We all remember this story. Um, the little guy that fights the giant that takes him out. And, and that is maybe the greatest underdog story of all time, right? So David may have gotten branded in retrospect as an underdog, but let's, let's not forget, he was a pretty impressive person, really. Before he even achieved any of the great feats that we know about in the Bible, he was pretty impressive. In fact, a servant of King Saul reports back to Saul about these goings-on at the household of, of Jesse. And, and this is what we have in 1 Samuel 16, verse 18. I have seen a son of Jesse, of Bethlehem, who knows how to play the harp, a brave man and a warrior, speaks well, and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. So if you're looking for a leader, a resume of someone that, that you would want to be a leader, David would be a pretty good choice. He's a warrior, he's brave, he's good-looking, he's articulate, he, he has an artistic side, he, he plays the harp, but, but the Bible is clear about something. The reason that God chooses David is none of these outstanding qualities. It is, it is this hidden quality, the one that the servant mentions last when he talks to Saul. It is that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with David. And that's what really mattered to God. God told Samuel, before Samuel was to anoint a king, God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things that a man looks at. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. So here's David, and people could have easily been captivated by this young man, his good looks, his eloquence, his courage, his strength, his skill with the harp. But what impresses the Lord is the heart, okay? What was on the inside was what counted to God. Hold on to that, because this is really going to matter when hopelessness surrounds David like a fog. So he is anointed king. Follow closely here. David is anointed king, but he will not begin to serve as king. He will not be crowned for a while. Okay. Saul is still on the throne, but David is anointed 
to be the next king. Um, So he's sort of living in this limbo. He is the anointed king, but he's not fully the king and won't be for a while. And this limbo is very quickly going to transform into a lot of stress and a lot of danger and some betrayal as this roller coaster of a story unfolds between David and Saul. After being anointed, he is still the youngest of the brothers, and so he doesn't go off to join the army and to fight with his fellow Israelites against the the menace of the Philistines. His brothers go off. He stays at home and tends the flock. And in fact, his trip to the battlefield is not a trip to the battlefield as a soldier, but a delivery boy. He will take lunch to his brothers who are at the battlefield. But while he's there on this delivery boy mission, he sees this giant named Goliath who is mocking Israel and more importantly is mocking the God of Israel. And in Saul's army, no one is willing to step out. No one will respond to this giant. And David says, I'll go. I'll fight Goliath. The rest is history, right? He slays Goliath. Israel wins an important victory over their enemies, the Philistines. And this legend is born of David. Now, as David's renown grew over all of the land, people began to hold David in the highest esteem And the seeds of jealousy are planted in the heart of Saul. He's threatened by this engaging young leader who is emerging on the scene. Folk are writing songs about David. When David walks by, the young maidens swoon. And Saul knows this is happening. Saul's own son and daughter will love David. Very threatened by David. So alarm bells are going off in Saul's head with respect to David, this young leader who who Samuel has anointed and who has defeated Goliath was, in Saul's way of thinking, putting everything at risk for him. His entire legacy is at risk because of this young David. Um, His status, his goals, everything. So a grave error that Saul makes in the story is Saul believes that David operates like he does. Okay, That David thinks like he does, um, that he's wired like Saul, um, because Saul is wired to, to operate by ambition. I think you could say he is consumed by ambition, believes that everyone else around him dances to the same music of self-interest, uh, of ambition. He doesn't understand that somebody could be moved by something or someone bigger than personal ambition. So at a fundamental level, Saul just doesn't get David. Doesn't understand him at all. What moves Saul ambition, what moves David primarily is, is his love for God. So they're moved by different things. So while David had been anointed by Samuel, David understood that the best course of action was patience. Trusting in the Lord, waiting on the Lord. I've been anointed, but my time has not yet come. He has zero 
intentions. Now, Saul is not going to believe this, but David has zero intentions of leading some sort of coup or some sort of rebellion against King Saul. Okay, in the meantime, he will, in fact, do everything he can to support Saul. Um, so David begins to serve Saul. Serve him publicly by, by fulfilling dangerous assignments, by leading troops into battle. And he also begins, David begins to serve Saul on a very, a very personal, really, a very ther- personal and therapeutic level by strumming his harp and singing for Saul when Saul is tormented by his own personal demons. So in, in 1 Samuel chapter 19, all the way through the end of, of the book, Saul, we have story after story, Saul obsessed by jealousy, anger, fear, trying repeatedly to capture and or kill David, who has only served him. Who has only served him. He's jealous of David's youth, his charisma, his talents, his reputation, his bright future. He is angry that people, including his own son son and daughter, love David. And he's fearful that David will tear his throne away. And so Saul, over and over, will try to kill David in these chapters. And this is, I had to share this because this is, is the setting for this very dark chapter in David's life. Long, painful season. He is in full flight. David, uh, rather Saul, has detached armed forces to find him and to destroy him. So David is constantly moving from place to place, from place to place. Last week he was sleeping in a cave. Um, he's always trying to stay one step ahead of the hunter. Now, for the last month or so, uh, we followed, I think all of us have probably followed with some degree of interest, the story of these two New York penitentiary escapees, Sweat and Matt. And I'm not suggesting there are a lot of parallels, okay, between their story and David's story. But I would say this, I think David's quality of life may have been something like their quality of life while they were on the lamb. Stressful, lonely, um, wild, um, moving from place to place. And we know their story didn't end well. And many people would have looked at David and thought, his story is not going to end well either, right? He's running, he's hiding, he's pretending he's insane at one point. Um, He's doing anything he can to survive. And I believe there is a lot that we can learn from this time in David's life about how we can hold on when we feel like giving up. How the fire of hope can burn within us when circumstances do not look hopeful. David held up. You can hold up. You can hold on when you feel like giving up. Now, Psalm 25 is a song... It's a prayer, it's a cry, worded by David to God. Verse 1, David says, O Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be disgraced or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. In my, and, and what... 
most, I think, would evaluate as an overwhelming and unwinnable situation, David had hope. David had hope. In the midst of the struggle, he proclaimed in verse 3, No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Verse 5, You are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Let's read that one out loud together if you would. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. All day long. David's hope in the Lord kept him going, kept his feet moving forward when many or most would have given up. And he did it for one thing, as we can see, because of this orientation. His faith in God, his love for God, the fact that he had given his life to God meant that he had an an orientation. His north star was in operation even when he was in the middle of the fog of despair. It grounded him no matter what he faced, no matter what the external circumstances were. David knew precisely who he was and whose he was. And so when you, feel, when you feel like giving up, hope in the Lord gives you this orientation. On the outline this morning, it's there. Orientation. It means that I have an identity to live from. I have an identity to live from. Sorry that ends in a preposition. I hope you're okay with that. But I have an identity to live from. Those are words of belonging. Those are words of ownership. David's like, whatever happens, my life is your property. I belong to you. I'm yours, Lord. And so, for me, what this means, or I think for believers, what this means is when I look in the mirror, I don't see rich or poor. When I look in the mirror, I don't see primarily or first, first and foremost black or white or anything like that. I don't see a person, and I want to call you to this. When you look in the mirror, don't see a person who's unemployed. Don't see a person who's lonely. Don't see a person who has a terminal illness. Don't see a person who's overweight. Don't see a person who, I just don't like my hair. I wish I had someone else's hair. Don't see any of this. Don't see a person who is, you name it, okay? When, when a disciple of Christ looks in the mirror, they first and foremost see a precious and treasured child of God. That's who I am. That's my identity. The other stuff is secondary. Think about it. When David is running for for his life, he could remember, okay, I'm anointed by God. A crown is waiting for me. When he was lonely, I'm anointed by God. A crown is is waiting for me. When he's threatened, I'm anointed by God. A crown is waiting for me. When, when people were spreading rumors about him, I'm anointed by God. A crown is waiting for me. When he's betrayed, I'm anointed by God. A crown is waiting for me. He knew 
his identity. And that is what he chose to live in and live from. That was established. He could remember that day. That day. When that anointing oil poured over his head. And when those words anointed him from Samuel to be the next king. His identity had been established not by his good looks or his winsome personality. His identity had been established by God himself, and that gave him a hope that burned in his soul. A hope that the fog of his circumstances could not extinguish. But that's David, right? I mean, that, that's David. I mean, he, yeah, anointed by Samuel to be the next king, anointed by God. That's David. As believers in Jesus Christ, we enjoy the benefits of knowing who we belong to and of looking forward with a new light because of our new identity. A lot of passages get at this. Here's one passage that I think can ground us and can orient us. As Paul shares these words with the church in Colossia, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, and then verse 12, Paul says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in His glory. God chose you to be the holy people he loves. God chose you. God anointed you. God selected you. And when the going gets tough, instead of becoming hopeless, we as Christians choose to live from this blood-bought identity that we have in Christ. My life is hidden with Christ. Now, it's easy to feel lost and confused when the fog of hopelessness begins to crowd around you. And another way to hold on in those moments is quite simply obedience. Obedience. David was, David was not a perfect person, okay, by any stretch. Not a perfect person. But he kept returning to the Lord. He kept returning to the Word of the Lord. And he either would align himself with the Word of God, or if things had gotten out of control, he would realign himself with the Word of God revealed to him. As he says in Psalm 119, verse 24, Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. They are my counselors. So for David, obedience to God was not a burden he carried around. It was a blessing he enjoyed. So write this down, obedience. I have a path to walk in. Things are foggy. 
things are not clear. Well, I have a path to walk in. Okay? In the fog of despair, it can get pretty hard to see your way forward. To be able to know what you need to do, to, to know what you need, how you need to respond. Um, where is all this going? And David proclaims, in that psalm, David proclaims, Psalm 25, for those who fear the Lord, He will show them the path. He will show them the path. Maybe it helps to imagine your life as a trip down the highway, this journey down the highway. And occasionally, there are going to be some deep ditches to the side of the highway. There may even be some some great ravines, dangerous ravines off to the side of the road. And sometimes the fog will descend and make it very hard to see. God's laws work kind of like guardrails in those moments. They keep you moving ahead. They eliminate that you are on the road. You are continuing in the right direction. And they keep you safe. His laws illuminate the path forward. They protect the path forward. They keep you from crashing into a ditch. Emotionally or spiritually, they keep the person who fears the Lord from wrecking their life. That's what God's laws do. Now, I guess a driver could decide, I don't like guardrails. Very limiting. I mean, I can't even go over there. If I, if I want to go, this guardrail is stopping me. In fact, guardrails, they really are oppressive and they limit my freedom. I guess a driver could, could think like that, and they would certainly be entitled to their opinion. But for those who trust in the Lord, they know the Lord loves them. They trust in His love. They trust in His wisdom. They know God is good. God's laws are good. Did David see... God's commandments as being burdensome and oppressive? Of course not. He saw them for what they were in Psalm 119, verse 32. Listen to what he says. He says, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. He found a path forward when life got confusing because he looked to the guardrails, he looked to the commands of God, and he walked by obedience. He found freedom in this. His hope was in God. David also found, this is the third thing on the outline, the final thing there is optimism. David also found some optimism in this. He had a future to believe in. I have a future to believe in. He says in verses 12 and 13 of Psalm 25, Who are those who fear the Lord? They will live in prosperity. And imagining this future, their children are going to inherit the land. David had been anointed by God to be king. Long before Saul passed away, long before he ever ascended to the throne, he could remember that day when Samuel anointed him. 
The day the prophet sought him out, that day pointed, that day in the past, it pointed forward, right? To this future day that he knew was coming when he would be king over Israel. He was able to envision the future, a wonderful future, a prosperous future. He was able to see that future that was far different from his present circumstances. And he knew he had this future to believe in because of his anointing. Disciples of Christ walk in faith. Dare I say, walk in optimism. Regardless of how things seem now, we know how this thing turns out. (laughs) We've read the last chapter of this book. It's called the book of Revelation in your Bible, right? And the book of Revelation, it may be a confusing book in in certain ways to interpret and everything, but I'll tell you what's not confusing about the book of Revelation. It gives you a glimpse into the future, and it says everything, everything will be made right. God wins, And you pull back the curtain, you're like, oh, I see see the future. God wins. No more injustice. No more death. No more heartbreak and tears. That's what the book of Revelation does. It pulls the curtain open. It gives us a glimpse of the future. And let's face it, there's hardly, when you talk about hope, there is hardly anything more pitiful and more tragic than false hope. This brings us to Jesus. Descendants of King David. Another one from Bethlehem. Jesus reigns forever on the throne, and we know that our hope, because of Jesus, isn't a false hope. He came from heaven to earth, He lived among us. He showed us what it looks like to really live. He showed us what it looks like to love without limits. He showed us how to live. He was betrayed? Yeah. He was falsely convicted? Yes. He was murdered on the cross? Yes. So it looked like hope was dead. And then, resurrection. Just as he said it would happen. Three days later, resurrected from the dead. No greater proof of our hope than this glorious resurrection. His victory is now our victory. His resurrection, a preview of our resurrection. He is the first fruits, but many more will come. A glimpse of our future. So no matter what, really, no matter what is happening in your world right now, no matter what fog of emotion hangs over you and clouds your perception of what's going on in Jesus Christ, you get a glimpse of what's coming. There's optimism there. 
Paul understood the implications of the resurrection of Christ for us. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 19 to 20, he said, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, yeah, we're to be more pitied than anyone in the world. But, put a big circle around this, in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Our hope is built on fact, Paul says. I mean, he and others had seen Jesus, resurrected Jesus, after he had been put to death by the Roman government. And so the story of Jesus doesn't end with his betrayal and with his crucifixion. He was resurrected, and Paul says, guess what? He's just the first. All of his disciples will experience this victory. Whatever burden you carry today, whatever dark fog of doubt or pain envelops you, know this, your story is not over. In Christ, you see a glimpse of what's in store for you. And so no matter what, we live with optimism in our hearts. We live with the power of hope built on the fact of the resurrection of Jesus and on all that he accomplished for us. In 1834, uh, a minister named Edward Mote wrote a hymn that is very familiar, I think, to us about this hope. Here are the words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. And every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And if you haven't given your life to Christ this morning, 
you can enjoy this orientation, this obedience in which you will find safety and freedom and a purpose for moving forward in your life. And you'll find an optimism about the future because you've seen what it looks like in Jesus Christ. You can put him on in baptism today. If you need prayers today, we would invite you to pray as we sing or come down and pray with me or one of our shepherds. However you need to respond, respond to God as we stand together in worship.